You're listening to The Good Faith, a podcast dedicated to applying historic Christian thinking to today's issues of faith, family, books, and culture. With your host, pastor, parent, and perpetual student of theology and culture, Chad Graham. In today's episode, I want to explore the Christian claim of exclusivity in a world of pluralism. Now, pluralism can be simply defined as any state in which two or more competing authorities exist. So, of course, we have different kinds of pluralism. We have cultural pluralism, political pluralism, and religious pluralism. And today in the West, we've really entered into a stage of cultural pluralism. Yes, there is still a dominant culture, but there are very substantial minority groups. Uh, And in Canada in particular, we have always lived with the coexistence between French-Canadian culture and English-Canadian culture. Now that's been augmented by various different immigrant cultures. And so our nation has been come to be known as a mosaic of cultures. The United States famously is called the melting pot, where all kinds of different flavors from all over the world come together and enter into the great American mix. But there are many cultures in America. My time in the United Kingdom, I saw the same thing there. There are people from all over the world, particularly there. There is the unique influence of the Commonwealth, where people from the uh, former um, dominions of the British Empire have gathered in the UK. And we see this all throughout Europe. This has caused a lot of stress at times, as cultures clash. Sometimes it's merely humorous, there's different views about parenting and childhood, different views about the nature of time. Other times, it can be a little bit more serious when it gets down into the nature and value of human persons, particularly women and children. There's also political pluralism, and I think that we're seeing that in the multiplicity of political parties and partisan groups that we see. The United States politics are always the most dominant in the news and in the world, and we certainly see that there as the Democratic Party begins to sort of fracture between different groups. The Democratic Socialists, represented by some of the newer, younger generation, the traditional Democrats, uh, represented perhaps by the Clintons, the progressive Democrats, perhaps represented by Barack Obama and that sort of party. And of course, this was all seen in the Republican Party as well, with the Tea Party and the traditionalists and so forth. Now, Christians, as citizens of their country, certainly have a stake in the society and in the politics. There are some things that have moral and ethical overtones to them, things that are better and worse. Part of the principle of loving your neighbor is to ensure that you put just political systems in place, and different arguments can be made there. But the kind of pluralism that I'm particularly concerned about is, of course, religious or spiritual pluralism. Now, there was a time when in the English-speaking world particularly, in the Western world generally, almost everyone would have identified as Protestant Christian. And we make no bones that every individual actually was an Orthodox Christian of some specific kind, but the general way we thought of ourselves was as Christian nations, as the Christian West. And that slowly declined and today really as a concept, as a, as a structure, doesn't really exist. There are vestiges of it in our um, national anthems and in our oaths of allegiance and so on. But that former cultural Christianity has begun to collapse. For a simple example, in Canada in the 1970s, 
about or just over 50% of Canadians would have identified as Roman Catholics and just over 40% would have identified as Protestant Christian and then you had about 8% left that was roughly divided between other religions and no religions. Today there's been a significant change so that the Roman Catholic group is slightly below 40%, the Protestant group is in the mid-20s, and now you've got a, a growing sense of other religions and a growing sense of the nuns, those who identify as no religion whatsoever, as that's become kind of popular with the new atheism. So we live in a culture of pluralistic religious ideas. And of course, this is certainly nothing new. The church was founded in just such a pluralistic world in the Greco-Roman culture. I quote from the words of St. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. What is being said here is, I think, very tremendous. I notice that there is not an apologetic argument made. There is not a demand for absolute conformity. There is a recognition that there are many gods and many lords. There are many competing belief systems. Christians are distinguished in that for us, there is one God and one Lord. And this, of course, is the very phraseology we see reflected in the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. And in the second uh, great section, and we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, His only Son. Now, Christians need not be afraid of pluralism. The church was founded in pluralism. And the church thrived in a culture of pluralism. Why is that? Well, I think that in Christendom, when there was a sort of cultural Christianity, and, and people believed that they were in, there was really no reason to evaluate your faith, to dig into your beliefs, to be certain that what you believed to be true was true. And so operating on sort of basic assumptions, people who didn't really believe, didn't really question or really care, and they lived and died in a nominal sort of way without any substantial beliefs. In a pluralistic culture, you're forced to think about what you believe and to contrast what you believe with others. One of the things that the early church found was that within paganism, there was a great trouble in finding current truth. Christianity could produce a creed and say, we all believe this certain set of things to be true about the great universals, about the meaning of life, about where we are going and our role in the world. Where the pagan philosophies and belief systems of the ancient Greco-Roman world were quite different. They were eclectic. They gathered together various different strings of thoughts. They borrowed from one another. As one author writes, the pagans were notoriously receptive to almost any kind of belief. And we see that in the way that the Romans simply adopted the Greek pantheon's idea of the divinities and the way they pulled in and adopted from Egypt and the way they pulled in and adopted from the Middle East. The Romans were pretty tolerant of different religions and cultures. But the one thing you had to do was recognize the supremacy of Rome. And so that was the problem for the Jews and the Christians. The Jews and the Christians, well, they didn't really get along. 
with everybody else. They claimed exclusivity of truth. They didn't simply merge in with the culture and adopt everything else. You could easily have been a Christian and a pagan. You could easily have been a Christian who was willing to recognize the lordship of Caesar. That is the, the sort of supreme allegiance and basically deity that was to be recognized in the rule of the Roman Empire. And you could offer sacrifices to the genius of Caesar. And if you could do that, you're perfectly welcome to be a Christian. But that wouldn't be Christianity. Christianity makes an exclusive case for truth. But like the Apostle Paul, we recognize that we hold our beliefs in the midst of various other beliefs. And in the marketplace of ideas, we're convinced that our beliefs are going to win out. I think that's the first thing that we have to acknowledge when we deal with this pluralistic world. Let's just recognize that we don't have the only belief system. Let's recognize that there are many other belief systems and invite people to explore Christianity. We want people to listen to a discussion such as the one we're having right now and say, hmm, that's interesting, that makes a lot of sense. So I know, first of all, that the creed begins with the words, we believe. In fact, the very word creed comes from this. The, the Latin word for we believe or I believe is credo. We believe is credamus, which is the uh, first-person plural form. But credo or credamus, I believe or we believe, is the first words that appear in the Latin version of the creed. And, of course, that's kind of come forward through our Latin cultural heritage so that we talk about a creed. The creed is really just a short summary of the things most certainly believed among us. Gerald Bray and Thomas Oden have edited a wonderful series called Ancient Christian Doctrine, which summarizes some of the statements from the earliest Christian leaders, the patristics or the fathers of the church. And in giving an overview of the creed, one of the things they note in a collection of sayings is this, that our faith is grounded in the teachings of the Lord, according to Ignatius. So that is, what we believe comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the authority for our beliefs come from. We believe Jesus... Therefore, we believe the things that are in the creed. Irenaeus and Tertullian both add that a common apostolic faith is found in all the churches where the apostles preached, and it is summarized in the rule of faith. It is the duty of church leaders to maintain the purity of that faith by rejecting new and unbiblical doctrines. So our understanding of truth is that which is rooted in our founder, Jesus Christ, whom Christians believe to be our Lord, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. We believe that the creator of heaven and earth took on flesh, became human, came down to earth, and walked among us, and shared the truth with us. We, like everyone else, were struggling to know what is truth. How do we put a coherent system together? How does it all fit together? What is ultimate reality? Plato struggled with that. What did the good look like? Aristotle struggled with that. What is the nature of God? They, they came up with definitions, but they were in contrast to one another. Other philosophers came up with, with the same general sort of structure that they had, but again, they had contrast with one another. We just couldn't know exactly what God was like. No man has seen God at any time. But our Lord Jesus Christ, the true God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. God came to us and said, this is reality. 
At least that's the Christian belief. We believe this. Credamus. We believe in one God, in one Lord, and in one Holy Spirit. For this reason, Christians have always put together wonderful prayers of belief. For example, one coming from the Book of Common Prayer goes like this. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, and so control our wills that we may be completely yours, utterly dedicated to you, and then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And we see in that prayer a really beautiful reminder that we are coming before Almighty and Eternal God and asking Him to draw our hearts, that is to draw our internal desires, our feelings, our thoughts to Him. We need to be drawn to God. We need our minds guided so our intellect is satisfied with our understanding of God. We ask Him to fill our imaginations so that some of what it means to be human, the thing that distinguishes us us from the animals, our ability to plan and think, make plans and have conceptions of things that do not yet exist, filled with God, and that our wills are turned to acknowledge Him rather than reject our Creator, so that we might be completely His and dedicated to Him. This is a prayer, not a statement of what is true. Christians pray like this because we again acknowledge that what we are facing is our belief in what we by nature cannot know. We believe in God, but others do not. We believe in one God, but others believe in many gods. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ who revealed to us the fundamental nature of ultimate reality. Others do not. In a world of pluralism, it behooves us to begin with humility. We believe. And so we profess. And so we witness. listening to the Good Faith Podcast. For more episodes, related articles, and additional information, visit chadwgraham.com. The music that we have been enjoying in the background comes from the Tudor Consort and their track Curia Laison, which is protected under a Creative Commons copyright license, which allows use with attribution. I referenced and highly recommend the series on ancient Christian doctrine put together by IVP, or InterVarsity Press, Academic, edited by Gerald Bray and Thomas Odin, and I was quoting from the first volume, We Believe in One God. And the Nicene Creed is readily available online.